Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm the founder of Project MedTech, Dwayne Mancini. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. My guest today is Andy Doraswamy, CEO of Koya Medical. In this episode, Andy and I discuss how his journey has prepared him for being a CEO in the medtech space, what they are working on at Koya Medical, where are they going next, what he has learned in each phase of his career so far, the importance of trust of team, the importance of who you raise capital from and why you should value that over how much you raise, and more. So without further ado, my discussion with Andy Doraswamy. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here, Dwayne. Yeah, thanks for thanks for hopping on. So I mentioned, uh, and and it's in the title as well. You're the the CEO of Koya Medical. Um, but before we really dive into you know what you guys are doing at Koya, um, I'd, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background in the medical device space, how it led to you know being the CEO of a of a, a startup medical device company, and and then we'll go from there. Yeah, happy to give you uh, give you my story of how I came into healthcare. It's quite frankly, it's a, it's a privilege to be in healthcare. Uh, I know we'll cover a lot of ground on some of the unmet needs. Um, my own journey was quite serendipitous. Um, so I'm trained as an engineer, chemical engineering, material science, and uh, a, a focus in uh, biomedical engineering. But uh, the story actually goes back to um, between my master's and uh, what subsequently ended up being my PhD, I took a break. I took a break for about a year and went and rediscovered my my purpose, my calling. So I went and climbed a few mountains, uh, trained as a mountaineering guide in the middle of nowhere in eastern Nepal. And that's sort of where it began, really. It was a transformative experience in uh, climbing. But as we were in the base camp, um, there was uh, exposure for me to cataract surgery and cataract camps, where free surgery was being provided to the villages. And that that touched me in a, in a deep way for me to have a deep focus. And it was a calling of sorts to to really do a lot of work in healthcare to improve uh, patient care. So for everyone who, who isn't aware, when you say Nepal, I'm assuming you were at the base camp of Mount Everest. Is that correct? No, I wish, I wish. I'm, uh, oh, okay. these, these days I look like a mountaineer with a beard and everything, but um, I'm far from being anywhere <laughs> near, near a spit. Um, but Everest is on the list. Um, I think these days, I think, Everybody, their mom wants to go to Everest. <laughs> but yeah. uh, this was in eastern Nepal, near uh, oh, okay. Sikkim in India, all the way okay. to the far end. Uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful place, very remote, and uh, had a lot of time climbing and introspection. Okay, wonderful. Um, so is this before or after your PhD then? 
This was before. So I came back okay. to, I started uh, school at Georgia Tech, uh, pursuing okay. a PhD in biomedical engineering, subsequently uh, transferred to UNC Chapel Hill since my advisor was moving there. Uh, still ended up climbing a mountain a year uh, to, to this date, but uh, more importantly, focused uh, in, in a variety of uh, new technologies in healthcare. So we were 3D printing cells into tissues uh, back then, uh, micro needles for drug delivery, a variety of very cutting edge work was being done. So it's so very fortunate to have that opportunity. Okay. So you graduate with your PhD. Where do you go next? Next, uh, I climbed the mountain, uh, but this time it was a quick uh, week, week long trip. And uh, subsequently was very lucky. I think everybody needs a few lucky breaks in their life. Uh, mine was right out of school. I joined a group that was um, working on intraocular lenses and a few yeah. other eye care related products. Uh, this was based in Santa Barbara, uh, California. So I went and interviewed to join them, to join the R&D department, um, picked, picked the region uh, more than the job, quite frankly, didn't know what I was getting into, but um, uh, it was great. It was a phenomenal exposure into all aspects of inventing, building, testing, uh, manufacturing, subsequently scaling and getting PMA approval and, mm -hmm. and uh, commercializing intraocular lenses. So this is, for those uh, who may not know, as we age, um, we lose our sight to cataract. So the crystalline lens in the eye slowly clouds and hardens, which we call cataract. So it's a very simple procedure these days with uh, less than two and a half minutes really to, to remove the lens and replace it with an artificial lens. One of the first biomedical biomaterial was actually an intraocular lens. It was polymethylmethacrylate, PMA, a PMMA. So that was replaced uh, by foldable acrylic lens. So my role was to, to essentially develop this new material to PMA and um, other types of lenses in the eye. Uh, it was really fascinating. And, and just, uh, we had a great team, a small team. So we ran it like a startup. It was backed by uh, Bill Link and a few others that are very active in eye care. So we were fortunate to have a great team. In fact, we worked with uh, NAMSA back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to say, I was going to ask how, how large was the company? Um, and well, let's start there. How, how large was the company in terms of employees? Yeah. So this was um, in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara has a lot of history in eye care. Chiron started there. A variety of interesting uh, companies were there. Um so for, for us, it was a small team, around 40 people initially. And the goal primarily was to uh, bring this to, through the PMA. We had multiple products, different styles of three-piece and single-piece lenses. So we were looking to, one, build a tremendous clinical evidence, but also commercialize it globally. So Santan Pharmaceuticals from Japan um, owned that company. They acquired it and... Uh, that was basically, it's currently sold as Eternity Lens in Japan and parts of Asia. And we licensed the product out to Bosch & Blom, which is called Envista Lens. So today it's treated over 6 million folks worldwide. Okay. So for, for, for those who don't know, uh, you know, taking a IOL to market 
especially just with it being a PMA, but there's a lot of testing that has to be done. Um, I remember working on a few of these products while I was at NAMSA, especially in the biocompatibility arena. And there's, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through in order to take this to market. So it's, it's, it's a, it's not a uh, easy task. It's fairly daunting, especially for a small company around 40 people. Um, was there any lessons, you know, you, you took from that, um, any, any pieces of advice of other companies going through PMAs? Was there something you wish you did, you didn't, uh, you know, curious on what your experience was as, as that is, that's your first intro into med tech, really. I mean, your first intro into a company and you're going after the longest, uh, hardest, I, I don't know if hardest is the best word to describe it, but, but, but definitely longest, most intricate, um, submission process with the FDA. And, and most impactful, I would argue, right? Yeah, of course. Lose, uh, when you lose your sight, uh, you can just close your eyes for a few seconds and imagine, right? So pretty much all your senses is uh, perceived primarily through, through sight. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something we take for granted in many ways. So it's very, very impactful, right? I think especially for folks in the developing nation, um, it's life-changing in many ways, right? So for us, uh, in terms of you know, the question of what did we learn, what did I learn? I mean, it was foundational for me, all aspects of the business from concept to testing, as you mentioned, through clinical studies, through marketing, commercialization. I mean, we had to do it all, right? It's a yeah. sink or swim situation and we thrived. I mean, it was a great team. We had some phenomenal people uh, that built the team together. So together we came through and, uh, you know, I think that's very similar to uh, a SEAL team in many ways, right? That analogy is overused, but quite frankly, I think it was just continuous learning all across and you did what needed to be done to, to build value. Continuous learning. Um, boy, this is something that I think if you look at the average person in their in, 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 a, in a job there there's like this goal of of working so that you can become complacent almost um, and and you you settle into a routine right um, and that is not startup life uh, startup life is continuous feedback um, we actually haven't had anyone talk about continuous learning before in the the, the 65 episodes that have been released so far Um no one has really brought that up, but it's it's so true in the startup life, right? I mean, in I think about some jobs that I used to have, and it was like you'd you'd master one thing, and then you were on repeat, right? Um, in startup life, it might be like that, but once you master something, you have to go on to the next task, right? And then the next task, and the next task. So, so that continuous learning, continuous feedback, I think is is. Uh, maybe not overlooked, but really, really important for startup companies. Um, okay, so this is what year then that you're at this? This is your first, your first entry. Yeah, mid mid two thousands, and uh, okay. you know, quite frankly, continuous learning. Just to be clear, I yeah. think it applies to not just startup, right? To any aspect of oh, yeah. what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, running a big company or being part of the big company is no easy task, mm -hmm. but it's a shift in how you approach it to say it's a hunger for knowledge and to, to, to grow. Right? Yep. Growth comes from that. So it can be in any situation, I think. Yeah. Andy, I used to, my wife used to have a professor in college um, 
so she's a physical therapist and she had this professor who would call their tests a celebration of knowledge and play uh, celebration, the song, um, before mm. they, before the actual exam. And it's, it's funny in college, you laugh about it, but we were just talking about the other day and I'm like, it's actually accurate. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> what we all, we all are, we all want. So a uh, really interesting perspective. Um, okay. So you're there how long and then, and then where do you go to next? Yeah. The, my second uh, big break was, um, being uh, at a point when uh, I was there for seven years, very okay. comfortable uh, towards the late end in Santa Barbara. I mean, if you've been to Santa Barbara, it's very, uh, it's a lovely place to be. Yeah. Um, so I get a call from one of my former colleagues uh, who worked with me at, uh, at the, at Santan, uh, who said, Hey, you, you, you ought to look at this. Um, and, and we was introduced to a spin out from Stanford Biodesign. So Stanford Biodesign is a very interesting program of looking at unmet need and evaluating solutions that may fit. So one of the spinouts was a company named Oculeve. A couple of folks there started the company and they were in eye care. So they were going after dry eye disease with an implant to stimulate the lacrimal gland. So given my implant background, um, I started talking to them, right? So it felt like, okay, take a leap of faith. Uh, it's an early stage company uh, with, with very early money. So NEA, Kleiner Perkins and Bursant came in on that one. So that was another one of those uh, leap of faith and tremendous learning you know, that really paid out. Yeah. So, 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 so what was the evolution of this one? Where, where did this end then? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story. So it started off as, a, as an implant. Uh, okay. to essentially literally see what happens if you stimulate the lacrimal gland. We, as we started looking at it with fresh eyes, no pun intended, uh, we, we discovered that the nerve is actually, it goes into your nose, inside the nose. So similar to how you breathe through your nose, uh, it's responsible for one third of your tear production. So tear is made of aqueous tear, which is like, um, primarily from the lacrimal gland, and then it's a uh, mucin, uh, which is uh, part of the cornea, the very outer layer, which holds on to the aqueous part. And then the very outer layer is uh, mybum, which is secreted by mybumian glands on the eyelid. So we were able to stimulate all three by finding the right nerve. So we literally struck the right nerve and we were able to do that through a home health product, which uh, shifted overnight to a home health connected device company. So we could externally uh, stimulate this. And then eventually we, we discovered you could also use biopharma. So we were quite literally, I think, running in a variety of directions, discovering how best to treat dry eye disease um, and came up with a variety of solutions for it. We were agnostic to what solution there was. Built clinical, built clinical evidence around that. And uh, once again, I think very lucky that uh, one of the strategics that was very interested in this, uh, a company named Allegan, which is under AbV now, um, they made an offer for the investors that we can refuse, and that moved on and uh, became part of Allegan. So it stayed stayed on with Allegan for about another year. Okay, and were you running the company, or what was your role with the company? Yeah, my role was to the chief chief operating officer. Okay, um, and in a startup, typically everybody does everything. Right. Yep. So we had oh, a small yeah. team there as well. So around 20 people or so. Okay. 
Wonderful. Um, so you stay with Allergan for, you said a month, right? Um, for a year. Yeah. Oh, for a year. Sorry. Um, so, so let me ask you this lessons learned from this experience. <clears throat> One of the biggest lesson I would say is, um, you, you have to have a laser focus on the patient and the unmet need and it, and it, you don't want to be too married to a solution that you have discovered, right? The most important thing is to understand how to, how to continually improve and be open-minded to other ways of treating a disease, right? I think quite often as uh, entrepreneurs, we get so much in love with the solution we've invented that we forget to take a step back and see, is there a better way to do it? And then ask that question on a repeated basis from a patient's perspective. Awesome. Um, okay. So you leave Allergan after a year. Then where does it take you? Then I take on some board roles uh, to help other companies um, evolve and take the lessons they learned and essentially pass that on to other founders, other entrepreneurs. So I did that for a while, realized I had uh, you know, too much energy within me to, <laughs> to sit on board roles alone. Mm -hmm. So around the same time, my dad was uh, diagnosed with prostatic cancer. Uh, he had just retired after working through his life and had surgery, radiation, chemo, the whole gamut, like most cancer survivors do. You do everything you can to treat it. Um, so subsequently, I think within a few months, uh, he had... What, what we now, what I now know as lymphedema, which is swelling of the extremity because of the impairment of lymph. So that sparked in me the curiosity of saying, what is this disease? Let's go find out more and learn. And, and eventually the unmet need was obviously great in this space. It compelled me to, to start Koya. Wow. Okay. Um, so... So you 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 so for Koya you're an actually you're you're actually the founder. That is correct. So I'm the founder okay. and uh, CEO of the company. We've got a small team of incredibly talented folks. Some of those that were part of the previous journey that I described with Oculi. Okay, okay. So what are you guys doing? Where are you at? Um, what did you find out when you started digging into this disease? Yeah, so the disease um, is caused by two, two major um, factors. So one is uh, if your lymph system is impaired, then the fluid has nowhere to go, but it starts to build up. It's a protein-rich fluid, right? So just to take a step back, the lymphatic system is incredibly important and a fascinating network, uh, it, but it has no pump, active pump that is pumping the fluid out. So the lymphatic system is responsible for your body to remove all the toxins and the cellular waste and the excess protein and everything that is denatured. That's the way it clears, right? The arterial and venous system, everybody knows, the heart pumps, <laughs> right? And we, we know that quite well and everybody is uh, quite active in that space in terms of innovation through stents and a variety of other techniques. But the lymph is right there along with the arterial and venous system. So when it is impaired, it doesn't have an active pump. The way the human body has evolved is through movement and through the muscle that's surrounding it is how it pushes the lymph. It's like a protein-rich fluid that moves through the capillaries 
is what happens and slowly clears through the gut, through the venous system eventually. So, so for when we looked at that, we, we were amazed because it's responsible for uh, your immune system through your basic um, you know, metabolic rate. And uh, what we found was the unmet need was great because cancer survivors and chronic venous disease survivors didn't have a lot of options. Okay. So what year is it when you found, when you founded this company? 2018 is um, 2018. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're, th- we're three years later. Um, where, 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 where are you guys at now? Yeah. So what we've done is uh, we've basically developed a wearable therapeutic system for this that enables mobility and getting treatment while you're on the go. Right. So one of the okay. issues with this disease is um it's, it's both physiologically difficult and psychosocially very difficult, right? I mean, these are cancer survivors who have already been through a lot, and now they're dealing with this chronic lymphedema that ha- doesn't have a cure. You know, one in five you know, breast cancer survivors have this, and the proportion of folks with lower extremity edema is very high. So the risk is, you know, beyond the edema, you have risk of infection, cellulitis, and if I'm left untreated, it can lead to hospitalization, even amputation in some case. So the psychological aspect, along with the physiological aspect, is a great unmet need. The way treatment works today is you start with uh, outpatient rehab with a therapist that's assigned to you. They provide manual lymphatic drainage to push the fluid out. But as you can imagine, it's a chronic condition that needs to be maintained. So it's not feasible for these folks to constantly go to the clinic. So they wear compression garments. uh, There are these uh, pneumatic compression devices or pumps that are available as well. And what we have done is taken a garment and we've made it come alive where you can get the pumping and the compression while you're on the go. Uh, Easier said than done, but uh, this required cutting edge engineering, a lot more difficult than uh, Mm -hmm. intraocular lenses or neurostimulation devices. Okay, interesting. So the current standard of of care, are these products, uh, what, 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 what was there? Well, first of all, is your, is your, is your product cleared or approved by the FDA or where are you It at? is, yeah. The team's yeah. been very busy. Um, it's, a, it's a team that's done this before. So we were able to navigate through the regulatory processes. We've got three clearances, upper, lower extremity. We've got a simpler device as well for entry okay. level. So real quick, while you talk, while you, while you, just from, from that standpoint to help people walk through it, because I think sometimes for first-time entrepreneurs, it's not clear. You had to get, you had to submit three separate submissions for all three of those therapeutic areas, correct? Um, I think sometimes that's often missed or misunderstood from first-time CEOs in this space. Can you kind of walk through that? Which one did you go after first and why? Yeah, so uh, the technology here is the one that is very cutting edge, as I mentioned, right? So you're using shape memory alloy, Dwayne, I'm sure you know SMAs. Uh, They've been used for cardiac stents to orthopedic implants, uh, to a variety of applications, actually, right? Including eye eye implants. Uh, What we've done is taken the shape memory property of shape memory materials like nitinol to activate it through electricity through to, to shrink and expand on demand. So we're able to apply sequential pressure with a garment. Okay. 
right? So think of yeah. the Iron Man uh, suit, for example, right? Yeah. So we're, we're able to do every, a version of that. I think the team eventually wants to build an Iron Man suit, but I think for now, the focus <laughs> is, uh, you know, lymphedema and venous care. We're able to enable right. folks to have a wearable to, to move. So the way we navigated FDA is there are predicates we compared it to that applies calibrated sequential compression to treat. So we were focused on, as I mentioned, lymphedema and chronic venous disease. So that was our focus. Initially, we developed the proof on the bench and all the testing required to go through FDA review. Okay. And it was a 510K? That's correct. It was a 510K. Okay. So let's, uh, the, the treatment of the disease, you, you've, you've obviously explained. Tell me about how you made this um, mobile for the patient, right? Because it's an important step um, that is oftentimes overlooked in 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 healthcare. Right? Is anytime you you give the patient the ability to do something else while they're getting treatment, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, you're giving them time back, right? And I think uh, just from talking to you. Um, you know, you're obviously very deep in thought, uh, a, a lot, and, and you can, you can tell, you know, time is the only resource. I say this a lot is, is the only resource I can't get more of. Right. I mean, there's others too. Right. But in my actual life, I mean, time is, is a, is a finite resource. Um, so maybe talk about, you know, when, as you're thinking about solving this problem, you're not just thinking about solving it better from a patient outcome perspective, but also from a, a mental health perspective, right? I mean, is that part of your initial thought process? And, and, and tell me about the technology. How is it, is it, is it hidden so that it's not obvious as they're out and, and about? I mean, tell me a little bit about that. Well, there's a great comments, by the way, but uh, it's not just you, right? I think at the end, for all of human life, I think, Time is probably the most important mm -hmm. asset, right? It's something you cannot buy back, right? So especially for health, uh, health enables one to, to live their life without necessarily you know, getting distracted. Like if you have lower back pain, for example, right? It's very difficult to have this podcast in a, <laughs> a non-distracting manner. It will constantly seek attention. So similarly, for any chronic disease or ailment, if you're required to pause your life for an hour, two hours every day, it, it, it has implications, right? Both physically and mentally, and also socially uh, in how you engage with your family or your surrounding. So it is, it is deep and it is important that we, we solve that and not just solve the, the symptoms of the disease uh, superficially, but go deep. It's very important to understand it from the patient's perspectives. In fact, one anecdote that comes to mind is, you know, we've worked with several hundred patients now, we've done five clinical studies. So we've gotten to know a lot of these folks quite well, and their perspective. And one of them, you know, told us that there's a lot of life packed in an hour. And it has made a tremendous difference in her life. And we hear that a lot, because they're the ones that, are, that live with it. So you see, so even if you're enabling movement or ease of use or access, uh, whatever you can do to do, you know, allow them to live, then you're moving the needle. You're not able to cure the disease just yet, but at least you can take the friction out of their life 
and and that is important. Sure. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so uh, back to the the one of the questions was, um, you know, how is that working? Right? Is this something that is hidden underneath the clothes? Uh, how long is the treatment? Um, kind of walk us through that a little bit. I'm curious on just how it's 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 so hidden. No, well said. So this required engineering minds of um, electronics, mechanical engineering, yeah. garment engineering. So you don't often think of garment and textiles when it comes right. to med tech, right? So we had to work with some world experts that understand garments and cuts and <laughs> putting quality yeah. standards around those and everything and color and finish. Um, yes, so your, your observation is spot on, right? Uh, when you talk to folks who have these chronic conditions, and if you ask them, what can I do to help? They'll say, look, make this, make this not a thing in my life. I don't want to think about it. I don't want mm -hmm. this to be flashy like an Apple watch or anything. I want this to be as subtle as it can be. I don't want this to be a thing. Yeah. So very good observation on that. And what we've done is sort of have very simple controller, a simple button you can press. It fits into your pocket. You can wear it, wear it around your neck, for example. But it's something that doesn't necessarily impede you from moving on. So it's very low profile is how we've come up with it. And um, eventually, you know, if, if they need different colors and other things, we can, of course, do that. Um, but we want to shift the mindset from something that is a dialysis machine like unit that's sitting in your house to something that's a wearable where you're proud to wear it and just, just walk around with it. Yeah. Okay. So where are you guys at now and, and, and where, where are you going? So you're on the market. Are you uh, gearing up for commercialization? It sounds like you've probably already started selling it to some extent. Are you just ramping that up? Um, you know, what's, what's Koya Medical's next step? Yeah. So we've come a long way in a short time and the, and the team's continuing to invent new ideas oh, to, okay. to yep. uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, continuous learning and looking at from a patient's perspective is the key. So we're working on a few other areas to see how can we take care of the entire continuum here. So more to come on that. Okay. Uh, so the R&D pipeline and the team is um, you know, obviously very rich in, in what, we're, what they're doing there. As far as the company itself, we have invested heavily in the clinical side. We just recently completed an RCT. Uh, data, and we're about to uh, present that at some of the national conferences and international conferences. So beyond the clinical proof that'll uh, continue to uh, continue to be a, an area of focus for us, we're also studying uh, commercialization and selective selective markets, and okay. that too would be a staged process to to grow, optimize uh, customer service to the back end. Uh, as you know, there's a lot to that. So our focus right now is uh, the, the very early stages of commercialization. Okay. So I've asked you every step of the way, uh, and this this story is not over yet, but what have you learned in, in this experience? In this so experience, um, I mean, obviously, that there's a lot of learnings, right? I think uh, a, a podcast wouldn't be just to <laughs> cover all of it. But if sure. you were to take the top, Two, I would say number one is trust with the team gets you speed and gets you efficiency in how you build a company, right? Very important. Um, and, and that 
sometimes you have to nurture that and other times it's very organic. We're very lucky to have a small team that has deep trust in one another, highly talented, of course, but that to me, it's, it's very obvious and evident that that goes a long way, right? And building value for all of our stakeholders, uh, patients and uh, okay, the caregivers and the investors alike. The second aspect is uh, the more I see uh, working in healthcare, I feel very privileged and I think uh, we all do, right? It's a unique community of folks who care deeply and want to really improve uh, and enable life, right? So I think it's highly gratifying and this is probably what I'll be doing uh, for the rest of my life. And I think that's validated by Koya, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I couldn't agree more. I constantly talk about the community of, of med tech folks that, that I've met uh, just through my career. And, um, you know, the, the underlying commonality between everybody I've met is the hunger to improve life or life in general, right? But specifically patients' lives. And, um, it's always, it's always a good reminder. Sometimes, you know, I, I think it's on every podcast, we don't necessarily talk about that. Um, but er, you know, every so often it seems to come up on an episode and it's just a good reminder of, of why we actually are in the industry. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, just, just out of curiosity as well. So we've covered, um, We've we've talked a little about the regulatory in in some of the different phases of your career so far. From a reimbursement side of things, what was that like for Koya? Is your product have a reimbursement code? Is it something the patient pays for out of pocket? What does that look like? Yeah, one of the key stakeholders, um, and obviously it starts with the patient as we discussed, and the caregivers is your next immediate circle. Mm -hmm. The third circle that comes after that is the the payer circle, right? Mm -hmm. Is how does it get paid, any treatment for that matter? So who is paying? So in in our ecosystem here in the US, we've got three major payers, right? So one is Medicare, which which is obviously the the big one. Then we've got commercial payers. um, There are several, several of them. And we have also the VA that is the third part of it. And all of them care about one thing, which is how do we provide the best access at the lowest cost possible, right? So it's a really a cost function. And if I am paying for something, how do I get the greatest benefit from what I'm paying for? Mm-hmm. So there's always this good cost pressure in a healthcare ecosystem. And uh, one of the starting points for that is to establish, especially for a new technology with your own codes and your own criteria for getting paid. So we're very fortunate in that CMS has given us our own set of new codes, which defines okay. this. And we're the only one in it for now, I think as uh, time evolves, we hope to have other innovators come in and expand the space, mm-hmm. um, but that's a great start. So it allows us to establish uh, a path for market access for our stakeholders. Very cool. Um, the other piece that seems to be pretty popular um, is clinical, right? So how early on did you focus on the need for clinical data? Um, and how has that helped 
with commercialization, um, but also I'm guessing because it was a 510k, it probably wasn't required for uh, 510k. I mean, it could have been, but but usually it's not. Um, so 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 how important has that capturing of clinical data been for you? Not maybe not just from a commercialization standpoint, but also like patient feedback and and constant improvement of the product. No, great question. Um, so most 510k products, and maybe this is a generalization, but typically for home health, the evidence of clinical proof is not as robust as PMA and some of the other uh, areas, right? So my training perhaps uh, in the in the eye care world, especially in intraocular lenses, um, sort of embedded in my DNA to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to look at things with tremendous evidence. So we just finished an RCT level one, one of the first of many uh, in the home health space. So we're looking to build additional value um, to, to all of our stakeholders to really talk about the burden, the proof, and how solutions uh, can, be, uh, can be essentially shown with robust data, right? So we'll probably continue doing this as we speak and, and grow the space and the level of evidence uh, to attract uh, early, early intervention. Right. Ultimately, yeah. we don't want the way healthcare in the U.S. Majority is them. You wait till they get really bad, <laughs> and then you intervene, mm-hmm. right? which is a, which is a terrible way of doing things. So we want to catch them early, uh, catch the disease early, diagnose it early, treat treat it early, so it doesn't get worse. Yeah. So I've had uh, probably at this point, by the time your episodes released, six or seven. Uh, uh, MDs who have been on the podcast and all of them have addressed the healthcare system in the U S as sick care. Um, and, and we haven't really spent time talking about it in other places around the world, but, but specifically the U S um, and, and they've all addressed it as sick care um, kind of for the same reason you just described, right. Um, is, is generally that's how we treat patients here is, is you wait till there's symptoms, you treat the symptoms, you, you wait till they're sick. It's not very preventative. It's not very proactive. Um, and, and so I think the more, you know, the, the, from, from talking to them, you know, they're very aware of this and they're, working on ways of combating that. And there's that aspect of from the medical device side, med- medical technology, digital health. Um, we have to do our part in innovating products as well to help bridge that gap. So um, it's good to see that uh, there, there's other innovators out there who are, who are working on these issues. Um, the other major area I had a question on, or at least I'd love to get your feedback on is, is raising uh, capital. So obviously you've, if Koya Medical is still around, you've a been successful in raising capital or you're selling products. So um, what have you done thus far? Uh, have you, have you, are you passed a series A or you passed a seed round? And is there any advice you might have within there? Again, I know we could probably spend a whole podcast episode on advice for raising capital, but is there anything that, hey, if I can leave you with one thing when you're raising capital, make sure you do this? Yeah, so... The most important, I mean, again, it's another podcast for sure, but uh, the, the, I think that if distilled absolute take home is who you raise capital from and who is on your board 
is way more important than how many, uh, you know, how much you raise. So in our case, we were very lucky. So we've got um, our chairman is Josh Balsell, a, a terrific human being with a phenomenal background in medtech. And we raised capital from Jan Garfinkel as the lead, along with several others who were part of the ecosystem here for us. So we've done seed and series A. And Ali Borline from Indigen is also on board. So, so board makeup and uh, who you raise capital from, the team's background, how do, how, you know, it's like almost like marriage, right? I think you want to make sure they're able to enable you building the company the right way and are focused on the right things at the right time. Okay. Awesome. Um, you know, that's not the first first time that has come up on the podcast about uh, raising capital from, uh, raising smart money is, is is a common phrase we hear, but but, but, you know, really centering who is going to be sitting on that board advising is, is maybe more important than raising a larger round. Um, so no, I appreciate the, the insight there. Um, Andy, before we wrap things up, is there, is there anything else you'd like to leave the audience with or anything we missed that you wanted to cover? Maybe just one uh, last note, which is uh, something you touched upon is uh, health care, and the key yeah. is health. Um, I'm very optimistic about the future, and especially with what's happening in med tech. Uh, mm-hmm. Several folks like yourself are enabling entrepreneurs like, like myself and teams like Encoya to do great things. So I'm very bullish in uh, what's to come uh, in, uh, in our lifetime in enabling health so thank you again, Dwayne, for, for doing what you do. Oh, thank you, Andy. Um, listen, I, I, I hang on for a minute. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Um, in terms of getting a hold of you, uh, I usually include a URL to your LinkedIn. Are you active on LinkedIn if someone was to reach out with questions or, or just needed to pick your brain on something? Yeah, we are on LinkedIn, Koya Medical. We're also www.koyamedical.com. Perfect. Uh, there's a phone number and email. If you'd like to talk to talk to us, just hit us up. Awesome. Great. So I'll include all those links in there. Uh, Andy, hang on for one minute. We'll chat offline real quick, but but really appreciate your time today and 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 taking you know an hour out of your day to, to give back to the med tech community. So I really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.